The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, I want to welcome everyone here today in the name of Jesus. And this is the part that Steve said where you can start getting out of your phones and text him. In fact, he gave me permission that at any point I can text Steve during the sermon. So you never know when that's coming. And I also want to extend to each and every one of you, if you're visiting today or if you are um, uh, a regular part of this gathering, I want to extend the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ on you today. I don't know if there's peace in your life. But God, he promises through Jesus peace. And so peace be to you this morning. Our text is from Ephesians 4. As we continue this sermon series on the mystery of us in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7, it says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, when he descended, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of a people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as you are here among us with your Holy Spirit, we pray for ears to hear your word. And God, we pray for hearts to follow. And God, I pray for the gift of preaching that I may speak the truth in love. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is your truth to us, we pray. Amen. So when I was younger, I was really good at recruiting my younger brother, Adam, to play games with me. I could always get him to come outside and play soccer or some, particularly some ball game. But I remember... On several instances in the summer, 
that I'd get him to come outside and we'd play wiffle ball. And so one of us would pitch and one of us would hit and we'd play these games. And I was great at recruiting him to do this, but eventually he'd mess it up. I mean, that's what younger brothers do, right? Can I get an amen from the older brothers? Thank you. It's ridiculous. He would always mess it up. I mean, he wouldn't throw the ball right. He wouldn't swing right. He'd run when he wasn't supposed to. And I'd get so mad at him. And I'd say, you can't, come on, throw a pitch better. Pitch it here, not here. Swing like this, not like that. Do this, not that. And then eventually, I'd pitch a ball, and he'd knock it over the fence. Oh, man, did he do it right. And then I felt very justified because I probably threw the ball in the dirt, and he probably one-hopped it, right? It bounced up, and he hit it. And then I just felt justified to manipulate just a little bit to say, no, you can't hit pitches like that. Right, he hits a home run, and I change the rules. If it hits the ground, you can't hit it. That home run doesn't count. And he would say, yes, it counts. And I was like, no, it doesn't count. And we, I just start, I, I just berate him and change the rules on him. And he'd quit, and he'd go in. And that was the end of the game. I was pretty immature. I didn't really know how to love my brother. I didn't know how to speak to him. I didn't appreciate and recognize the gifts that he brought to the game. I didn't know how to build him up. I didn't know how to encourage the things that he did well. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to love him. But eventually, I hope, I grew up. I love my brother. I began to appreciate what he brought to the table, and I began to speak in ways that built him up. That I matured, and I learned how to love him. Our text today cannot be understood apart from the first six verses that Brett preached on last week. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, As a prisoner... For the Lord, then I urge you, I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I call you to live a life worthy of the calling you've been called. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I love what Brett did with that text. He says, why are we called? He says, you're called to live a life worthy of the calling which you've been called because what God is doing 
didn't you hear chapters 1 through 3? Didn't you hear what God is doing and the work of gathering all things up in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ? And so what are we called to? Since God is doing this, he's gathering up all things in heaven and earth. He says, we're called to reconcile. We're called to be unified. He says unity is not secondary. It's primary. And it's a call to unity that looks like humility, gentleness, patience, and love. But I thank you for saying, is that the first thing outsiders think of us? Gentle, humble, patient, loving. And who is calling us? What's well, other than the God? One Lord, Jesus Christ. One Spirit. One Father. Three persons. One God. Fully reconciled. That's who's calling us. And I love this idea. I don't know if it'll catch on. I don't know what authority Brett and I have. To, but if we, every meeting we had, at least for a while, if we started by reading one through six, if we prayed that, Because there are hard conversations that go on. We read that and prayed that together. And then it goes on to say, we're unified because of what God is doing. This is the call to which we are called. And it's because this is who God is. And then he goes on to say this. But to each of you, to each one of us, a grace has been given. As Christ appointed it. And that the church in the church is given the gift of unity as God is unified, but as a gift that has comes with diversity. There's a lot of diverse gifts. In fact, even in this text today, if we could talk about all the diverse gifts that he lists off in a minute, there are lots of diverse images that happen. In fact, he begins by saying, this is why it says, and he probably goes back to Psalm 68, where it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to all his people. Gives this idea of Christ as the victor. And he defeats the powers and authorities that we've talked about in the book of Ephesians that work against his gathering up of all things. And he defeats them and he says he fills the whole universe He descended in order to defeat the powers. And Colossians 2, 15, as we've been studying with Jim, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. In fact, it gives this image of he took captives and he took the spoils and then he gave all these gifts. It gives this image of kind of a Roman triumphal procession after a general wins a war. Here's what this would look like. On the day of his triumph, the general wore a crown and he wore all purple to signal royalty. And gold embroiled, embroidered toga is what he would wear through town. And regalia, regalia that identified him as divine or kingly 
and his procession, he would ride in a chariot with four horses through the streets of Rome in an unarmed procession with his army. And he'd have his captives walking behind him and all the spoils of war. You can't help that when he cites this, that he took captives, that you have this image of this triumphant king who captured the authorities that were working against him. And he filled the whole universe and he marched them through town and made them a spectacle with all the spoils. But then here's the key. He took all the spoils of his victory and he started handing them out to his people. He took all the power and authority that was due and he started handing it out to his people. So Christ himself handed this out. He says he gave some to be apostles, those sent by God, and some to be prophets, those who speak on behalf of God, and some to be evangelists, those who proclaim God's reconciling work, some to be pastors to care for the people, and some to be teachers to nurture his people in faith. And the question is, why? Why so many diverse gifts? Because you know, when it there comes to diversity, there's always issues. It's seen as a problem. But this is not a problem in Ephesians. This is actually God's gift. That there's a diversity, that each one is given a gift, that everyone is given a gift, and this diversity is good. And here's the reason why. It's to equip the body for service so that it may be built up into unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son who gathers up all things. That's the gift. And so the goal of all this, he says, is maturity. Attaining, what he says, the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus. And we've heard this before because in Ephesians 1, 2 through 20, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it says, and God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Maturity in this sense is to become complete, to become full. The fullness of Christ to grow up into him, to become the fullness of his body of which he's head. And he says, here's what maturity looks like. It's unity with lots of diversity and lots of diverse gifts. But it's fairly clear from our text today that Paul is writing to a church that hasn't reached unity. I mean, that hasn't reached maturity. Because he goes on to say, then if we grow up in fullness and attain the fullness of Jesus, then we will no longer be infants. And he uses two distinct images here that characterize, I think, what amounts to chaos and order. There's two different images. The fullness of Christ 
And then just complete chaos. And the first one is this. Waves and wind. He gives these images of infants and waves and wind. And I don't know about you, but I take my kids to Whitewater Bay in the summer. And one of the central gathering places, all the slides are fine, but when the wave pool happens, when the waves start going, everybody flocks to the wave pool. And those waves aren't too bad. If you're my size, if you're fully grown. But for an infant, just scatter those infants all over the place. They go every which direction and have no ability to withstand waves like that. And then the other image it gives is this image of cunningness and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. And the language that's used there is like people that would invite that would invite you on the streets to come and play a game, right? Come and play a game of dice, and maybe it would be gambling or wagering going on. But there were often people known that would invite you in, come and play a game with us. And they had these dice that were, these die that were rigged. And so they would invite you in, but the die were rigged against you. They were rigged to make you lose. And so he uses this imagery of wind and waves, of infants being tossed back and forth, and of the die, the craftiness and cunning schemes that are meant to deceive you, these die that are rigged. And he contrasts. He contrasts babes divided over this or that. Scattered by wind and waves. Because of every wind, any kind of wind of teaching. And then he also uses this imagery. Mature in Christ. He contrasts babes and water. They get thrown here and there. And he says, but here's the maturity of Christ, the fullness of Christ. And then he takes this rigged die, this deceitful, cunning, trickery image, and he contrasts it with this, speaking the truth in love. So you have babes in water getting dashed about, mature in Christ. You have deceitful schemes and trickery, the die rigged against them, and speaking the truth in love. And there's a distinct contrast here. There's a contrast between the confession of one body and one spirit and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God who is Lord over all versus winds of teaching blowing us in different directions. There's a contrast between, a distinct contrast between the deceitful schemes that divide us and speaking the truth in love. There is a distinct contrast 
between God sending his apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who equip us for unity and the knowledge of Jesus versus the cunning and crafty ways of those who rig the die. There's a difference between the gifts that God fills us with the Holy Spirit and the deceitfulness that those crafty people put in the die. And so we're to speak the truth of the knowledge of Jesus in a way that is consistent with the love of Christ. Here's Paul's prayer in in chapter 3, verse 18. Paul prays that you, rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, and hear it, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God, maturity. That you may know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, and that you may fill, become the fullness of Jesus Christ. So Paul goes on, In verse 15, it says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every supporting ligament, doesn't get tossed around, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As Paul writes in Ephesians, we know, and we know this from the New Testament, that there are issues when the church, when the Gentiles come in, when you have Jews and Gentiles. And in Ephesians, he talks about, he he breaks down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he makes one new humanity. And surely, this text, he has in mind some of these issues. I have a friend who's a pastor or preacher in Williamsburg, Virginia. His name is Fred Ligon. Fred's a dear friend of mine. When he moved to Williamsburg, he, he preaches for the Williamsburg Christian Church, and when he moved there, the congregation was about less than 100 people, and it was dying. And after about a year of listening, he decided what was happening there was there was this whole current that people didn't know about, but there was this really, this problem of homelessness in Williamsburg. So he started reaching out to homeless people and to people with mental disabilities, which often were homeless as well. And the church really started gathering momentum and got behind this, and they started baptizing people and getting them off the street And they went in about two years from 100 people to 300 people, most of whom were people from the homeless community and those who had mental disabilities. They came and confessed one Lord, one faith, one hope, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And the church was excited and ecstatic. And these people brought in gifts to the church. 
And everything was good, Fred told me, until the rubber hit the road. And all of a sudden, people who were originally in that church realized, wait a minute, these new people, they don't exactly think like us. They're not, they don't have suburban sensibilities. In fact, question whether I should say this, but he told me, all of a sudden their church went to be a prim and proper place till they had a smoking corner outside. And the church was like, whoa! I don't know about this. They didn't all have the same politics as everyone in the church. They didn't have the same demeanor or characteristics. They didn't have the same backgrounds. They didn't grow up the same way. They didn't know all the same things. And they said, hold on. They were excited. They were so excited and they said, wait, hold on. We don't know about this. And Fred looked at them and he says, isn't this what you called them to? Didn't we call? Didn't we say, let's come and be unified. Let's come and reconcile in Jesus Christ. And they did and you were excited about that. Until their real differences showed up. And then you want to undo all that? And he says, this is not going to be easy. But this is the work that God has called us to do. If this church started calling people into reconciliation with the body of Christ, I think we'd rejoice. And then I also think the rubber would hit the road. Because when the Jews called the Gentiles in, it was fine for a little bit. And they said, whoa, 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 wait. These Gentiles are different than us. But Paul says, speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And Fred wanted to remind his congregation, here's what you're called to. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love. This is the work that God calls us to do. It's not easy work, but we're called to unity and God has gifted us with diversity that we may become full and mature, that we may become the body of Christ. Let's stand and sing.